just had a very fun, entertaining call interview with Sean Plume, the CEO of the National Pace Association. You'll see that uh, I jumped all over the place. We talked about our common roots in being from Kansas and the Midwest and talked about his passion for the Pace Association and its members. We talked about challenges for the Pace going forward. We talked about his own challenges for his own members. We talked about their unique method or channel or program for taking on the COVID pandemic. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by experience.care the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes Live by Experience Care. My name is Peter Murphy-Lewis. I'm your host today, and I'm excited to be talking to Sean Bloom. He's the CEO of National Pace Association. Sean, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Sean, you already know because before I hit record, I'm a big admirer of the PACE program. I had a guest who introduced me to the PACE program, Stephanie Button, about a year and a half ago. And I didn't really know what I was getting into. But when I met her, I knew that PACE was where it's at. You told me it's kind of got an evangelical and in the positive sense of the word, we'll use cultish feeling about it. Tell me about when you joined this cool cult called Space and Long-Term Care. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been here a long time, been here about 22 years. And yeah, we've seen a lot of changes, not only in pace, but I think in the surrounding long-term care marketplace, there's been an uh, enormous amount of improvements in giving frail older adults, I think, greater options to remain in the community. So yeah, I've been here quite a while, seen a lot of changes and very encouraged by the future of pace right now. I don't think you know this about me and you don't have to, but you and I have Kansas in common, along with Mark Parkinson, the president of ACA. I actually live in Wichita, not too far from your alma mater. How did you get from K-State into PACE? Thank you. I really like that question a lot. I come from a family where I'm probably the third or fourth generations of individuals that have been involved in long-term care, aging services. My great uncle was kind of a Methodist minister, which back then, kind of mid-century, those are the type of individuals that ran long-term care facilities, or they used to call homes for the aging. So very coincidentally, not because of you know the family pipeline of expectations, I started working as a nurse aide in high school. And really at the time, it was just a job. But in parallel to that, my uncle was going to grad school at University of North Texas Center for Aging. So little did I know when I went to college, you know, I was really focused on pre-med and ended up graduating biochemistry and was really going to be destined for med school. I got really sidetracked with a secondary major in gerontology. And I did an internship with my uncle who was managing the not-for-profit long-term care association in Kansas and really got the policy bug. So rather than go the clinical route, I kind of went the policy route, went to North Texas and Ended up in D.C. for an internship. And um, generally speaking, with the exception of like five, six years in Missouri, um, where I managed the nonprofit long-term care industry, I've been in D.C. ever since. So, I appreciate the background. Tell me about that policy bug that you got 20-some years ago. And feel free to you know pause on the details in terms of what interested you policy back then, as opposed to what interests you about policy today. Well, I think anybody, especially back then that worked in long-term care, probably had a fairly profound recognition there was a better way to deliver care. You know, if you think about, if you go back, let's call it, you know, the early 1900s, we were in multi-generational families, especially in 
kind of an agriculture state. And, you know, mom, grandma, we all lived together. And, you know, I think throughout the 1900s, you began to see people kind of move to the cities as they'd already begun doing, but they did so in great numbers. And really what that left was a lot of people in particular in rural areas that really did not have a family caregiver. So I, in particular, I tell the story about Miss Wingerson, who helped me make beds in a nursing home, and she was a resident. She did not need to be there. She needed a little bit of assistance. She was in great shape physically, cognitively. And it was pretty apparent back then that there has got to be a better way to do things. And I think once you begin getting involved in conversations, especially in a policy context, you realize how much opportunity there was back then to really improve things. So that's what really kind of inspired me on the policy side. Do you remember the first time you heard about a PACE program or stepped your foot inside of a PACE program? Or maybe it was your first aid position. Yeah, no, I think anybody that studied aging, undergraduate or graduate, you read about the kind of mystical on-lock model. Mary Louise Ansack, the founder of PACE, that is kind of prerequisite reading for any gerontology student. So I remember reading it out and I'm like, my gosh, that's the way to do it. I mean, you basically tell people, come and roll in PACE and we'll take care of everything, soup to nuts. So that's kind of how I began to think about PACE. But to me back then, and to hopefully not to a great degree today, we were seen as that's kind of a one-off, that's a special, that's like a Rolls Royce, no one can ever do that. And clearly we're, myself and colleagues I've worked with for 20 plus years are really out to change that. I think that kind of leads me into the next question, which is how big is PACE? And then secondly, how fast is it growing? And then if that is the best model, what are the obstacles for us to making it bigger? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. Right out of the gates, I'd like to say, you know, PACE program were seen and to a great extent probably remain today kind of disruptive technology. Back in 1997, you know, the lifeline of PACE started out as a good idea. And then Congress said, well, let's try to replicate this to see if this will work in places other than just downtown Chinatown in San Francisco. So they replicated it, studied it, and like, oh my gosh, you know, this has real benefits, lowering costs, improving care, generating better outcomes, so on and so forth. And then finally, in the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, Congress said, okay, you're a permanent Medicare benefit, but this is the operable term, you're an optional Medicaid benefit. So we exist at the pleasure of the states. So what we have effectively done over the last 20 years in particular, with the support of a lot of foundations, in particular, the Johnny Hartford Foundation, Gary and Mary West Foundation, others, has worked very, very hard to help replicate the model. And we are beginning to see today, you know, we've had over the last, I would say, 10 years, we've been averaging about seven new programs a year, which we celebrate. But right now we're looking at probably 50 plus programs over the next two years, which is probably not, if you've been paying attention to what's been taking place in long-term care, it's probably not a surprise. Mm -hmm. The obstacles we face are real. If you go into the States and we make a pitch for PACE in many ways, in many states, rightfully so, we're seen as new spending. Even though I think people generally realize we are diverting people away from more expensive, less effective options at keeping people in the community. So we exist in kind of a state budget environment that's challenging, the enrollment protocols. We like to say it should be as easy to get in a nursing home or at PACE as it is a nursing home. Unfortunately, that's just not the case in a lot of the state eligibility determination protocols that are used. So we still have a lot of challenge ahead of us, but we are beginning to see enormous explosion of pace right now. Sean, what's a part of the job that you really enjoy, but as CEO, you don't get to 
have your fingers in as much as possible, whether it be the creation of a new PACE program, or maybe a little bit of the lobbying at the state level, or maybe it's bringing in new evangelicals into the program. What's something that you wish you had an extra five hours in your week to do? I love that question. I appreciate you asking it because I just had a conversation with somebody yesterday about that very issue. Going back 22 years ago, 2000, we relocated the association to D.C. And like many people that work in associations, we're hired because of our subject matter expertise and policy skills. We had four people, I think, in 2002. Today, we've got like 30 positions at MPA. And so my role has really evolved out of policy. We have a very good, capable policy staff. I wish I could do more in-depth policy analysis but I realize there are people that do it better than me. And that's no longer, you know, the core essence of my job. But I still do a lot of our state stuff in partnership with our state director. I wish I could do more of that. I know one of the top in is housing and in long-term care services and support. I guess I'll start it off with an open-ended question. Why are you interested in it? And why should someone who's not be interested in it? Yeah, well, I think to the extent that you subscribe to the philosophy that older adults should be able to remain living in the community as long as possible, and you know, with skilled facilities being really the option of last resort that are very appropriate for people, for example, late stage dementia, short-term rehab, and that's what I definitely see is the population in the future we should really think of as appropriate for a skilled nursing facility. But So if you subscribe to the belief people should live in the community, housing becomes a really important staple for continuity of your ability to remain in the community. And I also know from my firsthand experience in PACE, you know, 90% or more of the people we serve in PACE are what are referred to as duly eligible. These are individuals that are eligible for Medicare by virtue of age, and they're eligible for Medicaid by virtue of income. So these individuals often are living in environments which are not always optimal to support continued living in the community. You know, people in New York may live in a six-story walk-up. That is really challenging (laughs) for an older woman, 82 years old, that may have significant degeneration, you know, arthritis and a variety of different symptoms. So housing, good purpose-built housing for the frail elderly, in my view, is instrumental to perpetuate a long-term care marketplace where people can age in place, age in the community. I want to ask you about, and I think I'm going to take away your first probably gut reaction, and I'm going to ask you what's a myth or misconception about it. And I know that you already said one of it, that we're a new cost. So that's probably one myth. But when you talk to someone who has heard up pace from afar, what's something that they ask you or say to you? And you're like, oh, you're just a little bit off. Let me explain something that will help clarify. Yeah, I think the best term that comes to mind that we and the PACE community somewhat bristle at when we hear is, I've got a PACE-like program. And, you know, I think in the minds of the PACE community, unless you're accepting full, complete, unlimited financial risk for all of Medicare and Medicaid and medically necessary services, you're nowhere near the box of PACE. Because what really makes PACE work is the assumption of full financial risk for all an individual's healthcare services across Medicare and Medicaid. And then the second essential element is you directly employ your caregivers. These are not individuals we contract with and pay them on a per unit basis. Our physicians are salaried individuals that dedicate themselves all day long to the care for PACE participants. So that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. And it scares a lot of people off, quite frankly, once they figure that out. Sean, going back to kind of the previous question about 
your growth and something you wished you were involved in more. What does your leadership look like? What do you do next week in terms of what fills up your 40 to 60 hours? And then also give me a little bit of color to that. How do you run that team? What kind of leader are you? Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. And I probably don't think of that enough explicitly. I'm taking a class, I'm very excited. I'm taking a class at Harvard first week of December and it's called Authentic Leadership. And it's really helping you answer that question yourself. I'll do my best in the absence of that clarity, but I'm a very collaborative leader. I am, the association's a pretty flat organization if you look at our organizational chart. I believe in hiring really good people, intensely supporting their climbing, the very steep learning curve of pace getting out of the way. My job is to really set a beacon of direction and some big strategic steps to get there and then let people spread their wings and do whatever they bring to bear, whatever talent, whatever creativity they see is appropriate. So that's kind of my style. What I focus on is probably four parts, strategy, constantly working on, we're very disciplined with our strategic plans. So constantly thinking about better ways to get there. So the strategy with a big S and a lot of little strategic things. Two, I do a lot of state work, state strategy work. Four, I provide a lot of technical assistance to our members. And then lastly, I feel like I kind of run a business and I've got to manage the affairs of the association, both at the staff level, financial, the board, and the membership. So that's kind of where I focus. I'm always interested in where leaders acquire new knowledge. And I don't often get to talk to advocates that are in DC, the same question. So I'm wondering, where do you go about understanding the direction of long-term care services and how it's going to affect pace? Where do you go about picking up information to help out with staffing crisis or new bills? I mean, are you on Twitter? Are you on Reddit? Do you just follow a bunch of newsletters from DC? Give me some insight into what your kind of second brain looks like. Okay, confession time. Yes, I host the LTC Heroes podcast, and hopefully you know that by now, but I can't take all the credit. Jason Long, the CEO of Experience Care, told me two years ago that when we started this show, that this new audio platform had to create value for everyone, whether you're a client of Experience Care EHR or not. Then he encouraged me to become a CNA to really help LTC Heroes resonate with caregivers and leaders. And between you and me, he really knew what he was talking about. LTC Heroes has been invited to almost 10 conventions in 2022 to finally shine a light on what leaders like you have been doing for decades. It's that sort of knowledge of the industry that really makes me appreciate Experience Care, which has developed a customizable and intuitive EHR that makes clinical financial and billing processes more efficient and accurate. It transforms workflows into something that makes sense so you can focus on what really matters, caring for your residents. The software is used by ALFs, SNFs, CCRCs, big and small facilities alike. Countless users have reached out and shared with me that it really is effective in helping them improve outcomes. I can honestly say that I know my grandparents would be proud to learn that I work at a place like at Experience Care, and I just wanted to take the time to thank Experience Care for sponsoring this podcast. Check out their latest products at www.experience.care. Yeah, no, that's, I, I really like your questions. They're unique and I appreciate them. With respect to subject matter, yes, we be told, you know, we subscribe to Politico Pro, Congressional Quarterly Health, 
a variety of different, these digital news sources, which blast your inbox every day and keep you apprised of things, subject matter that you're interested in. And you can certainly screen. So constant barrage of in, information about what's going on, not just legislatively, but policy-wise. Also, one of the good things about DC is that there are a lot of very, very smart people that have similar interests. And there are many meetings and work groups and gatherings and collaborations where you have the opportunity to sit at a table and just maybe brainstorm or have to open into discussion. And lastly, you know, having worked here a very long time, you have a professional network of individuals with whom you work and bounce ideas off of and those type of things. So that's kind of on the subject matter. On what I call the more management leadership, I'm co-chair of a group called Health Association Leadership League that we formed about 15 years ago, and it's comprised of CEOs of what I call smaller niche associations. So it's not the American Medical Association, not the American Hospital, but rather the Behavioral Health Managed Care Association, by way of example. So relatively smaller associations, and we get together monthly. We do not talk about policy and legislative issues, but we talk about leadership, governance, management, financial stewardship, those type of things. So those two avenues for me are essential to let me attempt to succeed in my job. On the subject level in our industry, if you can't find it in a newsletter, who's one or two people that you pick up the phone and call and say, help me understand what's happening here. What do we need to think about from an advocacy point of level? What does PACE need to understand and how this might affect our members? Who are you calling? This may sound very provincial, but a my colleagues. I work with individuals that have a lot of in-depth knowledge. I've worked with these individuals for over 20 years. And, you know, they came out of Health Plan Association and American Healthcare and variety of different healthcare associations in DC. But they have their own networks, they have their own areas of focus. And between us, you know, I'd like to believe that we're our judgment's pretty good. We do, there are individuals that we go outside and work with. You know, we've got several subject matter experts that help us with legal decision-making, political decision-making, and those type of things. I'm going to go back to Pace, but I want to pause kind of on a personal question. Let's say that I start working with your association today. We worked together for six months. What's something that I might not know about you at the personal level when you go home? Who is Sean outside of Pace that might be a little surprise? Either you ride a unicycle on Tuesday evenings or you haven't had milk in five years. Something interesting about you. Oh, that's interesting. You know, you're stumping me here. I would say I'm a little quirky. I'm a little whimsical. I am probably too humorous at times. I don't take myself seriously at times. Yeah. I'm probably the class, I'm probably the class clown. Yeah. Thanks for letting me be a little bit intrusive in the middle of the interview. Sean, I want to go to a newish member program that you think has just really taken off and done well you know, whether it be from a marketing point of view or got a lot of community support or a lot of political support right away. And tell me what's special about them. So, you know, maybe I'll have them on the podcast or I'll just go look them up and, you know, to say cheers. Yeah. You know, there's one program that they're very unique and I don't ever expect to see a program like this probably again. It's called West Pace and it's a Pace program in San Diego area. And it was established by a foundation called the Mary and Gary West Foundation. And they've gotten not only the operate pace, but the foundation is really focused on improving elder care. And then they also have a policy think tank in DC. So between the three of those entities, they just generated some incredible resources on telehealth for pace. 
They created a new guidebook on pace development strategies. They're just uniquely positioned to really contribute to the pace movement and emerging organizations that want to develop pace. They're a really great organization. So I would say uh, West Pace, Mary and Gary West Foundation. I'll look them up and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Shun, take me back to what was going through your mind when you first realized that we were going into a serious pandemic, whether you realized it early on in January because you were at the national level, or maybe you realized it when most of us did in March. What did you start to think about how our industry is going to be affected, what you needed to prepare for, how you need to talk to your members and make sure that they were prepared? Yeah, no, that's, I, we thought about that a lot. Well, first off, kind of at a tactical level, we immediately, if you recall, the very first case was outside of Seattle. And we have a very established, well-established program in Seattle and a very experienced medical director. And we reached out to Dr. Kazimi, pretty much said, what's up? What's going on with this? And he was very invested in understanding the nature and etiology of the virus, as well as ways to mitigate it. So we immediately, this was early, late February, early March of 2020, we organized a call with all of our medical directors and program directors. And he pretty much in a very unscripted way told us what's going on and what he's learning and what precautionary steps he's taking in particular with PPE. In our minds, in my mind, it was very much like Tale of Two Cities. I was knowledgeable enough about long-term care facilities to know that this was potentially going to be very, very bad. I also knew enough about PACE and the inherent, we have enormous flexibility with capitated payments. We can move really quickly. I had enormous confidence to the extent that they got on top of it, that we were going to really do a good job protect, balancing this conflicting strategy of protecting our participants at home from the virus, but meeting their care needs. Those things are not complementary exposing them you know, every day. So I was pretty much like, we pray for the long-term care facilities and my family operates rural facilities in Kansas. And what can I do to really help our PACE programs get ready for and help to mitigate the impact of the virus on participants? And if they do well, which they did, then we are probably going to emerge in a very advantageous position, which we are. Our rates of infection and death are about a third of what they are in nursing homes. So we've been very, very effective. And yeah, and we've been able to maintain operations through the pandemic, unlike a lot of other fee-for-service providers. I didn't know that stat, so I'm guessing that there's a fair amount of listeners who didn't know it as, as well. I'm guessing that there is a decent percentage of long-term care owners, operators who haven't set foot inside of a PACE program. Can you think of anything tangible that maybe within your first 30 minutes or your first hour, you're like, this is a little bit different that you could kind of let us walk into and it describe to us that's a surprise when you are that first ambassador walking somebody into a program. Yeah. Well, first, going back to the nursing issue, I often follow up that statistic by saying, in my view, in large part, the large scale loss of life in long-term care facilities was not, did not stem from poor care, it's environmental design. So it's important, I think, to clarify that. But yet it was important for us to kind of record our experience and nursing nurse experience. The first thing I think people notice is how many people, types of professionals can be involved in a participant's life on any given day. There could be an encounter with the doctor, there could be a physical therapy visit, 
discussion with the social worker, meals, they could have light nursing. I mean, it's real time, all care. And I think a lot, I haven't given a lot, and the CMS administrator just visited Pace last week. And her experience was, my gosh, there's a lot here. So I think it's the totality of services that are available and being rendered to participants that tend to surprise people. As we start to wrap up, and then I'll ask you if there's anything that I haven't touched upon, but I do want to ask you, if you were going to be critical of PACE and say, I really want us to improve better this way a year from now or five years from now, how would you challenge yourself, your own association and your members? Yeah, no, that's a real good question. It's something that we are very cognizant of. A, to be a little bit more assertive at expanding awareness in the community. Be much more mindful of vast majority of PACE programs and not-for-profit. There's definitely a mission, but you, we try to contextualize that you also have a responsibility to expand access to PACE. So invest, invest, invest in expanding access to PACE. And then the last piece, get creative. And the reason I say that, because the PACE philosophy is each one teach one, which has been wonderful, but we've each one is taught one. And we've then so only recently during the pandemic have we really seen a massive uptick in innovation, operational innovation and pace, because people really believe they needed to adhere to the very tight structures of the model. But what we discovered during the pandemic is there's a lot of room for innovation that we didn't realize. So I would say go innovate, continue to innovate. I love it. Love the challenge. Sean, is there anything, any topics we didn't touch upon or any questions that I didn't ask that you would like to highlight that you're passionate about or you think that PACE particularly deserves some more recognition? Yeah. You know, I mentioned 90% of the people we serve are duly eligible. The vast majority of people in this country that need long-term care are not at the point of needing long-term care Medicaid eligible. Now, many spend down, but one of the biggest obstacles we have for what we call Medicare-only enrollees, these are individuals that pay out-of-pocket the equivalent of what we get under Medicaid, which is roughly half the cost of a monthly nursing home cost. The Part D premium in PACE, by virtue of how it's constructed, is about $1,000 a month. We have a legislation moving on the Hill that would allow individuals to bring their Part D coverage in. That jumping from $50 a month to $1,000 a month, it pretty much wipes out any opportunity for Medicare only to enroll in PACE. If we can eliminate that barrier, we can not only serve a whole new larger category of individuals, but I think equally as important, we can help these individuals slow their rate of spend down relative to an institutional service option and allow them, you know, on any given day, only 5% of our people are in a nursing home. You know, we've got a 95% success rate at keeping people at home. So I would like to see us expand in that area. Love it. Sean, thank you so much for joining me on LTC Heroes. If you ever make it back to K-State for a Wildcat game, you come look me up. I'll take you out for coffee or a beer or lunch. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Peter. I really appreciated the discussion. You posed very good questions. Hope to meet you in person soon. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.